in Atlanta, um, some people are like, yeah, I'm I'm listening to Keisha, <laughs> and I'm always like, well, I mean, technically, you don't have to listen to Keisha because Keisha is not everybody's mayor, but uh, it's great that you're listening to Keisha. But we see, but then then they're also confused about, well, how can he tell us what to do in Atlanta? Well, he's the governor of the entire state, right? And so. <laughs> Um, in some instances supersede what Keisha says and so excuse me, Mayor Lance Bottom, she's not my friend I don't know her like that What up, what up, what up This is Three Brothers No Sense I'm Tavares Ferguson And we're bringing to you a special episode Of Three Brothers No Sense We're bringing a special Brother for the next few weeks Brandon Davis He's going to talk to you guys about COVID-19 On an educated tip Brandon, take it away Another day is here and you're ready for it What to wear? Check Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for joining us and welcome uh, to our fourth episode of the coronavirus and outcomes for African Americans, the African American community. Again, this week, our fourth episode, we are continue to punch above our weight class. Uh, we have some really talented uh, academics uh, on the panel today. We have Dr. Uh, Brianka Merritt, who is a clinical assistant professor at the O'Neill School at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. And she is the founding director of the Center for Research on Inclusion and Social Policy at the Indiana University Public Policy Institute. Dr. Merritt's research examines how policies and programs facilitate racially inequitable outcomes across areas of social policy, such as poverty reduction, housing, public safety, and social service provision, among others. Her work involves understanding the intersection of public policy and equity through program evaluations and community-engaged research in Indianapolis. Dr. Mary's PhD is in health promotion sciences with an emphasis on health disparities from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, Hudson College of Public Health. Her MA in political sciences is from the Texas A&M University. Dr. Tony G. Rings is an assistant professor in the School for Environment and Sustainability and the director of the Urban Energy Justice Lab at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and a JPB Environmental Health Fellow at Harvard University. He has a PhD in public administration from the University of Kansas, a master's in engineering management from Kansas State University, and a bachelor's of science in civil engineering from North Carolina A&T State University. Uh, Dr. Reams research investigates the fair and equitable access to affordable, reliable, and clean energy and explores the production and persistence of energy disparities across race, class, and place. He is a licensed professional engineer and has worked in both the public and private sectors. Uh, Dr. Reams is also a U.S. Army, Army veteran, reaching the rank of captain. In 2019, Dr. Reams was named to the Grist 50 Fixers List. Midwest Energy News 40 Under 40, the Oakland County, Michigan 40 Under 40. He was appointed to the current governor, Gretchen Whitmer, to uh, her uh, advisory council for environmental justice. Dr. Dre Capers is an associate professor at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at the Georgia State University. Her research focuses on social and racial equity at the intersection of public administration, policy implementation, and race and ethnic politics. She often combines organizational theories, representation, and bureaucratic politics research to explain the factors that influence bureaucrats' decision-making and the implications of this process for historically marginalized populations. Substantively, her research centers on social policy issues, particularly education. A second line of research explores policy implications of ethnic diversity and bias within racial groups. Specifically, it probes how and why African, Caribbean, Afro-Latino 
immigrants differ from U.S. born blacks in their decision making, policy attitudes and political experiences. Dr. Caseman holds a Ph.D. in political science from Texas A&M University, and she is a 2008 graduate of Winthrop University, only degrees in both psychology and political science. Thank you all for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. I guess uh, I want to start with probably the, the most salient policy issue uh, of the day when it comes to coronavirus in African-American communities, which is environmental policy. So Vice had an article a couple weeks ago uh, that said that the coronavirus death rates are a direct result of environmental racism. And we've been seeing a lot of articles out lately talking about environmental policy and specifically saying things about talking things about environmental justice, environmental injustice and environmental racism. And uh, Dr. Reyes, as you're a specialist in this area, uh, I want to know if you could just give us a definitional understanding of what some of these terms mean. And then we'll move into these, the, the outcomes for these implications of these policies over the years that have put people in these positions. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me on the podcast, Brandon. I'm excited to talk about this topic and with with the brilliant minds that are also um, on here tonight. <laughs> Environmental racism um, is one of those terms that uh, kind of came out of this movement in the 1980s um, when a lot of environmental decision making was being made without the voice of the communities that were directly impacted. Um, and so you can go back to the 1980s um, in Warren, North Carolina, and see one of the first protests around poor environmental decision making and the decision to place a, a dump in a community that was majority African American, majority low income. Um, and kind of out of that movement, you saw more and more communities starting to recognize that they were being adversely dumped on by things that communities that had more political capital did not want in their communities and could actively fight that. And so we see the the vestiges of that still today when we look at where coal plants are and, you know, 80 percent of African-Americans being located uh, close to a coal fired power plant. Um, and then that then rolls into what we see now with coronavirus and um, the connection between uh, adverse impacts of coronavirus uh, and polluting or polluted communities, um, particularly those with, you know, things like steel plants and power plants and um, people already having compromised respiratory systems. And so, again, we can trace all of these decision making points where Big corporations come into a state, get benefits and incentives to build in those communities, but never really take into account the cumulative impact that they're having on communities. Um, you can take the 4217 zip code in Michigan, which is the most polluted zip code um, in the state and one of the most polluted zip codes in the country. And you can track that directly to increased cases in uh, COVID-19. And so again, this, this idea that black and brown communities have less political capital um, to intervene in decision-making has led to um, what we know as environmental racism. Okay. So can I ask you, is there, would there be a difference between what you would call environmental racism in an urban setting as compared to a rural or rural or suburban-y type area? No, I don't think so. I think um, the environmental justice movement, again, um, started in a very rural part of North Carolina. Um, but you see these kind of manifestations of uh, environmental decision making. So I always tell people I grew up in an environmental justice community, majority African-American, uh, predominantly low income in rural South Carolina. We have the state's largest landfill and the state's largest maximum security prison. Two things that no other town in the state of South Carolina wanted. Um, and so you see that because it used to be a textile community. And so when it lost all of the textile plants um, during the early 90s, um, in an effort to replace some of that, that tax base, they decided to allow these two things to come into the county and it has detrimental impacts on the community to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Dr. Merritt, would, would you, uh, uh, could I get your uh, thoughts on, I guess, the social policy, public policy aspects of, of being an uh, expert in inclusion? Is it because African-Americans are not at the table? Uh, so it's like a lot of different avenues. So it's uh, they don't have the political capital or resources to defend themselves from the public policy. Uh, the, the corporation uh, has ties to the government or something like that. But can you talk about like why these policies 
are, are slated so slated against African-American communities or poor communities and brown communities, to be, uh, generally speaking. Sure. Um, and again, thanks for having me. Um, I would say a lot of this starts at the early phases of the public policy process when we think about how different actors come together to influence or shape a piece of legislation. The question is, who's at the table? And to your point, often we're not at the table when it comes to developing legislation and really influencing that process, lobbying different folks and legislators to really be a part of the conversation. And sometimes even when we're not there, there are groups that can certainly speak on behalf of black and brown communities. But usually that gets watered down by the time we see something that comes out of you know, a state um, legislative body. So the likelihood of a piece of legislation having something specifically in there saying we are going to make sure to address a black neighborhood or black neighborhoods, however that's defined, very unlikely and very difficult to do. So what that means is once it comes down to actually implementing whatever that piece of legislation is, uh, there's not really an incentive in place for you know governing bodies or local communities to really be held accountable to doing something for a particular population. So, you know, why would you go above and beyond? So similar to what Dr. Reed said, you know, there are certainly, you know, polluted neighborhoods that might not be black or brown, but it seems to be mostly us, uh, same with a lot of other social policy issues. Um, and so the question is, what often happens is there is kind of a more race neutral, more, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats perspective to this legislation where it's, you know, we want to address um, people who live in low income communities. Certainly there's black people there, but there's also low income rural white families as well with the idea this will benefit everyone. So why, uh, I guess on the, uh, it's, easy, it's easy for me to understand or, or, or believe that on a city municipal, county, probably possibly even state level that we would see, you know, these disparities and these, these, these kind of, um, we're not going to talk about it deals where we put the, you know, the, the prison or the, or the, uh, waste management plant. Uh, but we, we also see disparities in, in policies like these at the federal level. And so I wondered if, uh, uh, Dr. Capers, you can speak to, you know, just, I guess, racial public, racial public policy and what, any, I, any research behind why we see this not only on, you know, the municipal level and state level, but also on the federal level. Sure. Um, again, thanks for having me. So a part of it is related to some of the things that Dr. Merritt already pointed out. So representation is important and it's something that certainly can help, but the extent to which representation matters is going to be contingent on one, the size, to the placement of where a person is representing their constituents in terms of political capital. So that is what committees does a person sit on, partnerships or um, alliances does he or she have uh, with other elected officials that influence the policy process. And so at the federal level, when we think about uh, for example, what elected officials, uh, black elected officials are doing uh, for the black community, we have to remember that they have to um, also negotiate with other elected officials who might not be as invested in addressing these disparities or addressing these inequities um, in a substantive way. Now, symbolic things you can often get um, support for, but things that are related to what you just pointed out, like placement of um, even federal facilities um, in communities are are less are more challenging to get to get accomplished. And so I think that has a role in uh, the outcomes and the policies that we see and the implications and the effect that they have on uh, black communities. So it's not that we just want to have people who represent us, but actually have some real substantive representation to do the work that would be beneficial um, and not having that shows up in the outcomes that we get. Thank you. So th there's there's also been this uh, a flood of new public policy since the coronavirus. So there's been there's been new legislation on unemployment, new legislation on uh, on this uh, paycheck protection program, and you know even with these brand new policies, there's an article in um, NBC News which says that. Uh, the, the title is why are so many black owned small businesses shut out of PPP loans? And so I guess my question is, it can go to, to, to everyone is, you know, in the public policy realm, wh why, why is this all, like, it seems like to be a default of public policy 
to an extent that it will it will just by default leave people out. And just like this news article talks about, it gives a it says like it, it talks about the policy as it's benign. Like, oh, this is not, it wasn't designed to do this. It was, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't supposed to do this. This is just some kind of externality we didn't plan for. But it seems to be that, you know, if it happens all the time and, and, and there has to be something behind it, right? There has to be some type of, some type of engine behind it pushing this towards uh, these biased outcomes. Is that outcome on the, on the design part? Or is that outcome on the implementation part? Are the people on the ground, the bureaucrats on the ground that are implementing these public policies biased? Or are they coming out the gate uh, slanted to one side or the other? I'll take a quick stab at it and then my my, uh, my policy friends can jump in. Um, but I do think our, it's kind of on both sides, right? I think on the design side, policies are being designed for equality and not equity. Um, and so we're not understanding that there are already these barriers to people participating in these programs. Um, I, I know I, I work with a few nonprofits, um, and I've seen just difference in how those two organizations have been able to access these funds. One has a really strong relationship with their banker. And so the applications were, you know, ready to go as soon as the money was available. And another one had to try to find a bank, um, to be able to get through. Um, the process. And by the time they finally got their application in, all the funds have run out. And so again, you know, in, in my work in the, the energy space, like a utility may create a program for energy efficiency and say, you know, every household can participate in this program, but they advertise it on the internet. And so there may be a lack of internet access in certain communities. And so communities don't find out about the program until it's too late and, you know, they've done first come, first serve. And so I do think on the policy design side, um, until we start designing programs, you know, with an eye towards equity, we're always going to say, well, it's available for everybody and everybody can apply, but we know there are barriers to people actually getting to the point of applying. Uh, and then on the implementation side, uh, a lot of times bureaucrats are tied to implement the programs based on the regulations. Um, and regulations sometimes des definitely don't allow for this kind of equity approach. Um, and so a lot of times in my work, that's what I talk about, this idea of designing for equity and implementing with equity um, at the forefront. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I would add that because um, to your point about a lot of policies being enacted in response to COVID, that there's kind of two levels, like you talked about this federal, especially the CARES Act in particular, which is this big, hefty federal policy. I think it is very much on the design side. Certainly it is both um, design and implementation, but in this case, uh, because it's so large, because it has come in such a tight time frame, the way it was designed is very important. And now we're seeing a lot of the effects of how things are implemented. Again, uh, to Dr. Rooms's point, if you don't have the resources to navigate that effectively at the state level and certainly at the community level, you're going to have a lot more issues and barriers trying to um, not just implement it, but be a recipient of some of the potential benefits of that. And so, again, because they were not clear and perhaps intentionally clear, you're seeing a lot of backlash you know, at different state houses now where they're bringing out Confederate flags and other types of materials, clearly indicating they're perceiving a racial tint to something, right? And so to be able to say in the beginning very clearly that we really intend to help uh, Black-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses, the type of backlash that uh, a politician would get for supporting that type of language and legislation uh, could result in the types of protests and things that you're seeing now, but perhaps at a larger scale, they've seen it before, and they don't want to go down that road. So uh, to kind of also err on the side of caution, receive you know a little more uh, greater likelihood potentially of being reelected or uh, doing other things at the federal level, they tend to shy away from being that direct in their language, which of course leads to implementation problems. I'll just add to that and a little bit more on the bureaucratic side is we have to remember that uh, bureaucrats are policy gatekeepers, right? So they actually are deciding who gets to come, who gets to go, right? Who gets the resources versus who does not. And in this case, banks, we use banks as being the gatekeepers. Now these are private actors. So we get we get a policy that is generally race neutral, but we get policy actors who are kind of outside of the public realm to make these decisions. And they're making decisions, um, as Dr. Reese pointed out, based on who they have relationships with. And we know that the relationships that the black community has with banks is not always the most 
um, warm, fuzzy and cozy relationship. And so we see these bigger structural issues come out and how it's implemented and who we choose to implement and how they decide to implement. So it just reinforces all of these structural barriers and the historical structure barriers that African-Americans have experienced in this country. And so we see this continuously. And so that's how um, to go back to your question is like, what's going on here if we continue to see this? Well, we keep building on the structural inequalities and the structural biases that we've had in this um, policy process all along. And we just continue to reinforce them. Well, well let's just talk about this for a second, that the idea of black public policy or black policy, because a lot of people say, well, you hear a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to vote for anybody unless they have policy specifically for black people. And then, as Dr. Mira said, if you come out with a policy specific for black people, you got to turn other folks off. And so there's this dance around uh, having things that are specifically targeted for African-American communities, but also not being able to have policy that is specifically targeted for African-American communities. And uh, one of the critiques of the Obama administration was that, oh, he didn't do anything for black folks. And some people say, oh, we got Obamacare and that got a lot of black people insurance. But then you turn around and you say, well, he did DACA and DOMA which was specifically for undocumented individuals. Uh, but it was p- politically speaking, it was uh, uh, something that could be seen for the Latinx community. And so uh, th- that idea of black public policy, of policy specifically for, for African-Americans, uh, what, what, what's behind that? Like what, what would be an example of a, a black policy or something like that? Because you hear it, but nobody ever says anything specific. Um, I think... Dr. Reams kind of alluded to this a little bit. It's about designing all policies for equity and not equality. I think historically and certainly currently, we can think of some areas where we get a lot of attention for black people experiencing disproportionately negative outcomes, such as incarceration rates, um, among many others. But obviously, there's argument and lots of clear data that show that black folks disproportionately miss out on most uh, major outcomes for our well-being, whether it's health, um, housing, education, et cetera. And so I think there is actually a greater argument to be made for how do we infuse equity and accountability for achieving equity across any policy area rather than just saying, oh, well, black people go to jail a lot. It's like, well, black people also have diabetes a lot and a lot of other things a lot. So um, I think it's a little we're shortchanging ourselves by saying we only belong in this bucket. And I don't think it's fair for us to limit ourselves there as we have been in some other topical areas. We're not the Latinx community, which also certainly has things that affect them greater than immigration policy. So I think we actually kind of sell ourselves short by trying to say, well, here's one specific area that would help black folks benefit from everything being as equitable as possible. Because mm-hmm. it seems like these policies are connected. So if you if you live in an area that is experiencing or, uh, some type of uh, environmental injustice, then that would, pro- that would necessarily correlate with disparities in health, uh, which would correlate with lower property values from, you know, from the, from the dump, you know, there. And then that would correlate to, uh, you know, your school not having the funding it's needing. And so uh, there's another policy area uh, uh, I wanted to go to talking about schools is that, uh, you know, I just read this thing about California and they went online, took all the you know online school and they realized like half the kids were not logging in. And it never dawned to them that, you know, some of these kids might not have Internet or laptops and computers at home. And so uh, if, uh, if Dr. Cambridge, you could just uh, you know, give us a kind of a, a before uh, COVID snapshot of like black education. Uh, and, and then if any, any current research has come out recently about the effect of this on African-American students uh, who may possibly be in these low income areas that don't have, you know, if they do have Wi-Fi, it may not be good Wi-Fi and they might not have access to computers or, or, or things of that nature. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> it's not a secret that um, before COVID, um, black education has struggled, right? Historically, Black education has struggled. And so um, it's not a secret that Black students often um, perform lower, have fewer resources, attend schools, whether it's in the urban area or rural area, um, that are segregated and have fewer resources. So not um, just not having computers, but having um, access to the technology needed for those computers or having um, access to the latest programs or the latest Curriculum, for example. Um, and so that was, uh, those were already issues that school districts and 
that serve uh, Black students were already dealing with. Um, and then after COVID, we just see these issues becoming more heightened. So now, as you pointed out in California, and this isn't unique to California, right? So we experienced this right here in Atlanta, um, experienced it in South Carolina, where my mother is a teacher, um, where the students, not only they don't have access to computers or stable internet, as you pointed out, but um, their parents may not be able to assist them with the even the paper packets of work that they're providing with their to their children and um, to their students. And so um, what we end up finding and what we think is going to happen is sort of a bigger a bigger effect on what we sometimes consider the summer slide. So the summer slide is um, when students are away from school, they um, may lose some of the knowledge and skills that they've gained throughout school, um, particularly math skills, but sometimes reading skills as well. And so one of the already expectations and conversations certain education circles is, well, how what effect will COVID have on student learning, student outcomes, student achievement, this gains that we've made before March when schools, when schools were still in session. And so there is an anticipation that um, many students who were already struggling will be struggling more. And even the students who weren't necessarily struggling will, will lose some of the benefit that they received um, in schools. And so I don't think that this is that point that I'm making isn't unique to areas that serve black students, but because black students are often marginalized within schools and have fewer resources, the impact of that slide may be more significant after COVID. Um, and to your point about not having the resources at home, it's only, only going to uh, make the problem even worse. One of the other things that has come up is not just sort of academic, but also the, the, the soft skills that students are getting um, in school and then the resources that they're getting. So schools, as you know, um, are kind of like hospitals, right? There's a nurse there. They're the people who feed the students, right? So there's a school nutrition program there. And students are also losing those things that are important to becoming a well-rounded student. And so students depend on this. Black students depend on it significantly more often uh, than their non-Black counterparts. And so losing that, those resources is going to have a significant effect on Black students. So, yeah. So uh, I guess another area uh, I like to talk about is kind of it's in the, the, the cross section of health disparities, uh, service provision and also uh, uh, environmental uh, justice is that uh, in a lot of cities, I was reading a lot of cities, a lot of the essential workers are, Af are of color or people of color. And so when you have a policy that says that the buses still run, the, the, you know, the, the, you work at a, some type of facility, you're like a janitorial staff, a clerical staff for the state, uh, use clerical positions, uh, that you're still having to go to work, but you're also still in a minority, you're a minority and you're more vulnerable in a lot of these states, especially like, you know, places like, uh, well, really every state. So any thoughts on those those types of those types of policies that are maybe forcing people to to be in spaces where they may contract COVID? And again, on top of that, the the federal uh, executive order that uh, mandated that meatpacking plants continue to pack meat. Right. And these in, the, in these areas and these plants are packed with people of color. And they're essentially saying you have to go to work. And if you don't go to work, we fire you. You can't get unemployment. And so you're forcing these people uh, into service provision, right? That are, that are already people or uh, people of color already uh, have health disparities. Force them into these environments where they have more likely to contract uh, COVID-19. I will just—I don't have much to say, but I will say this makes me think about an area that. I'm less familiar with, but it brings into focus the importance of labor policies and and people hate, hate this, but union representation. Right. So being able to advocate for yourself um, is something that unions allow us and help us to do. And so because unions overall have become weak in this country, we see the implications now um, in these spaces, particularly in. Um, facilities that, like you mentioned, where there are a lot of workers who are marginalized populations, people of color, but who so already on the lower scale of the racial hierarchy, but also on the lower scale of the employment hierarchy. And so not having that um, union power, union representation and ability to advocate for themselves has kind of put them in a bind. And we we've used policy to pretty much water down any 
labor benefits um, and protections for particularly service-oriented um, positions. And so we see those implications. And one of the, I would step out on a limb and say one, of, one possible reason we've allowed this um, is because the dynamics of who works in the um, the service industry or a factory industry has shifted, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the racial dynamics have shifted in a way that that those who would normally, who have, who started there don't work there anymore. And so uh, I think he, this is a space where uh, labor policy, although not always talked about and thought about, is becoming square and focused in, in this discussion. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. And um, you kind of saw that actually put into action here in Detroit, where um, the bus driver said, look, you know, we don't have any protection. They're not cleaning the buses and sterilizing them. Um, there was a video of a, a bus driver that went viral talking about a woman coughing on the bus. Um, and unfortunately, he actually passed away from COVID. But the bus drivers decided that one day they were not going to come to work and it shut this, you know, the bus system down, which, of course, you know, different impacts on people who use the bus. Uh, but it did uh, wake the city up to say, OK, we're going to put in place a sterilization process. And so the bus is sterilized and we give protective um, equipment to the bus drivers. Um, and so this idea that, you know, the union actually allowed them to have the opportunity to, you know, not strike, but um, to use their their power to not show up. Um, and get some of the protection that they actually needed. Um, but you do see that um, with the Amazon plants, when the people decided to protest, you saw people getting fired, and that's because they don't necessarily have union representation to negotiate those agreements between them and the corporation. You know, the restaurants, there's there's not a lot of protection there. Um, and so it is kind of interesting how we see what really becomes essential when, you know, a lot of people are fortunate enough to, to stay home and shelter in place. And I do think that the that this pandemic is really highlighting the shift in 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 what is necessary here in this country and who is essential and, and how we protect those those workers. Um, you look at the post office, you look at like you brought up the meatpacking plants and you know what really keeps our economy going. Um, and how do we protect folks when things like this happen? And especially if it's going to happen again in the fall, what do we do um, to put the measures in place to protect people, the policy, the resources um, and the protection? Yeah. And I will add to that. I think um, you make a good point about the like the interrelationships among each of these different policy areas and how they're all very interconnected. And so I think it requires a similar interconnected approach to address that and just how important it is for even just if one piece in that step can be covered, how big of a difference it makes. Um, I think Dr. Cabers made a good point about different sectors. We often talk about the government and policy, but there are certainly private organizations such as, you know, Tyson and other meatpacking plants where we're seeing these trends and how other sectors have to step up and fill the gap. So um, an example of kind of like cross-sectional protections, I think, here in Indianapolis is Indianapolis Public Schools has an equity, an education equity fund. And so they've called out equity. They specifically called out racial equity as a problem, but also the intersection of race and class. And so they were able to pull together funds from foundations and we have Salesforce headquartered here. And so they've actually provided a one-to-one one um, laptop to student opportunity so that they can learn at home. And they're also providing internet access and support um, as well. So you can imagine if you're going to work specifically, you know, to make sure that your kids have internet access to their schoolwork, if you know that that's being covered, that's a huge relief for you to be able to not have to go to work on a particular day. Or if you have rental protections, you know, you can skip a couple months rent and not have to pay that back immediately because the state has done something about that. I think they both made good points, too, around um, just opportunities for states and other localities to step in. So not just kind of, again, this gap filling from other sectors, but also what it means to have states like Minnesota who are saying, "Okay, you're an essential worker outside of medical professions like a lot of you guys are, too. Let's provide you with child care access. And so it's things like that that make a huge difference where, yes, having labor protections make a big difference as well. But even these small things uh, that really don't take that much effort to provide sort of at a um, state level, you're not overhauling things for the next 10 years, just for a few months. Even that uh, could probably be shown to make a huge difference where we're not seeing kind of 
massive long-term overhauls. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I'm struck by what they call everything they call essential. Cause I kind of feel like a lot of these things are not essential that I feel like a lot of these things are to, to, to make it more, make it more convenient for the people who have the privilege of working from home. So yeah. it's, like, it's almost, it's almost like these policies are to cater to people like myself who can work from home and I can say, Oh, I'm not going to cook today. Let me order a pizza. Oh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go to the store today. Let me get my groceries delivered. You know, it's it's, it's not essential. That's not essential. I don't think that that, that service is from for, for me personally. I don't believe it's essential. I think it's very interesting that how they how they classify that. And uh, another word about the meatpacking plants. There was a great uh, today on the Daily on New York Times the Daily. They talked to a, a woman who contracted coronavirus from meatpacking plant, and she said that uh, the majority of the people that worked at her plant in North Dakota. In North Dakota, a Smithfield plant, were uh, Somali refugees that they had come over on uh, on, on uh, as refugees and taken jobs uh, at the plant because it paid decent money. And so there's another step here: this intersection of not only people of color but black people of of non-native African Americans, you know, Af- people from Africa, people from uh, Caribbean countries, and things coming over uh, and and working in these types of industries. Yeah, you know, if you look at Western Kansas um, and like God City and some of those cities out there where they have a lot of big beef uh, production industry, um, I think some of those school districts, you know, have over 100 languages being spoken in the school district because all the kids are um, the kids are of of, uh, immigrant parents. And um, and so you think about, you know, that's already a vulnerable population. They have less protections than, you know, even American citizens have sometimes. Um, and so, again, you're creating this this kind of tiered class of, of, of who's protected in these type of pandemics. Um, it, it was so funny how upset, you know, you go on sites like next door and see people complaining about what's not open. Um, and so here, because of you know, trash pickup, we had um, a stop in lawn waste or yard waste i'm telling you like the people went crazy and so um so then all the cities there in the suburbs passed that yard waste could be picked up again like that was so essential that people didn't hold their leaves for a few more months during a global pandemic but um but like you say i do think this idea of what's essential and what's necessary um is definitely based in in some classism that shows its ugly head throughout this process yeah, it's definitely what's essential for people like us who can't afford to, you know, work from home, because if we don't have, you know, fresh meats and things like that, then it's a problem or we don't get our Amazon Prime deliveries. It's a problem. So I think that's a great point. Right. I also <laughs> wanted to add too that, um, you know, I just been following the numbers for the state of Indiana, like racially, how the cases are being tracked as all of us probably you're seeing our states update their numbers daily, uh, that the Latino or Hispanic uh, COVID cases were really down here. And we know in other states, uh, they tended to be overrepresented. And then they did a bunch of COVID tests at a Tyson plant in Northwestern Indiana. And the next day, the cases went from like 3% to 9% of the cases being Hispanic or Latino. And so to your point about like immigrant populations, people of color being overrepresented, to see that huge of a jump in a state like Indiana, where I think Latinos make up about three to 4% of the overall population, or maybe close to seven, I think. To see that overrepresentation happen just from a sampling of a meatpacking plant, I think to your point, just highlights uh, those disparities in how people are employed. Yeah, I think the other thing to think about and talking about the numbers, I'm glad you brought that up and where we are seeing these um, more recent spikes in these plants and bringing up immigrant populations. We have to remember that the rhetoric and the narrative um, that immigrants are receiving, we're all receiving, but they are receiving um, about their place in society and their access to um, goods and services and certainly a test, right? suggests that the numbers might be actually worse, right? That there may be more immigrants affected by COVID-19 than we even know or realize because they are less comfortable going to the doctor where their threats of um, possibly being outed, quote unquote, uh, for any little thing. And so it'll be interesting to see what this entails as time goes by. 
I'll add that they also have the public charge rule as well that's up right now, which precludes um, and clarifies like under what circumstances immigrants can get certain benefits. And so even though right now there might be cases where they could qualify for some benefits depending on their status and some other things, I think to Dr. Caper's point, you're probably afraid that you're going to go out and apply for something and not get it. I know some folks who have gotten some stimulus checks who are part of an immigrant population are very confused and afraid about what do mm-hmm. I do with this? Um, because why would you not think that someone's going to come back and maybe ask for it back or, um, again, kind of question your status and some other things that make you uncomfortable? Right. Yeah, we saw this in the uh, in the Flint water crisis. Um, you saw disparities in who actually would go to water pickup sites, especially when you have them, you know, manned by National Guard's personnel. And so who's an uh, undocumented person going to go up to a distribution site where one, you're going to have to show some type of ID and you see people dressed in in uniforms and they may or may not have weapons. And so there's definitely an undercount. And we know that even, you know, in the African-American community, there's an undercount when it comes to access to um, hospitals or testing sites. Um, story after story is coming out every day about, you know, whole families, you know, being devastated by this. And, and, the, and the common theme is that people kept trying to get a test. They would go to this hospital. They would go to this center. Um, and so even just the access to a test, when, when we say a test is available for everybody. Um, so if you are afraid to go get it and if you try to get it and you're unsuccessful, um, we know that we have an undercount in a number of cases. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, I have a question specific to, to Michigan because, uh, you know, the governor Whitmore is, um, from all intents and purposes, has been thrust into the limelight. And, uh, you know, she's having you know, people come up to the Capitol and storm the Capitol, you know, armed, you know, armed uh, protesters all in the Capitol building. And they, they're, they're saying that it's because of her stay at home order or what she says is essential order. And I kind of feel like that's kind of, you know, to my point of what's not what's not essential. And so, like, you know, there are some of the complaints I saw were like people said you can't buy paint. And I don't know if that's true or not. But other people say, oh, you can't go on a jet ski. And I was just thinking, that's not essential. You know, that's not, that's not essential. Like, why Like why would you why would you get a gun and go into the courthouse because you can't go on a jet ski right now? You know, you got a jet ski. Yeah. Well, hey, this is this is a peninsula, right? And so we have a lot of water here in Michigan. And so, um, you know, I always, I always joke about climate change um, because we'll probably be one of the few cool places in the U.S. when everybody else is starting to heat up. And so everybody will want to live in Michigan. So I, I'm very thankful that I ended up here. Um, but, but yeah, you know, so paint, you know, you could not buy paint. Um, I think you can now. Um, you could not boat, um, but you can boat now. You can also golf now. Um, but I, I think I think the protests were very telling. If you look at a lot of the signs, they were about getting a haircut. I want to get a haircut. Um, They were saying that the governor was clearly getting her hair done. And so, but there was definitely a racial tinge to this. Um, Several of the signs pointed out Detroit, saying that Michigan is not just Detroit because, uh, you know, a lot of this was focused on the heavily populated area of the state, which is Southeast Mm -hmm. Michigan, where Detroit is and where a lot of the cases were. but I, I think it also points out the lack of understanding about how this virus is traveling and if it's being if, if people aren't allowed or don't have to stay in one place. And then it would be only a matter of time before it got to some of these places that people were saying that the virus wasn't there. Um, and so, I mean, it's almost like people were willing to sacrifice like that one. I think it was a lieutenant governor of Texas. That said that older people were willing to sacrifice themselves so their grandkids could have an economy. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just think, and I know this is probably not what we were thinking about, but I mean, there was no national message really about this. And so then you had all these states kind of doing things on their own. You had states that are more aligned with the president, you know, like South Carolina, where um, me and Dr. Cabers are from, you know, kind of saying like, oh, well, we don't believe this. The president was actually in South Carolina saying that it was a Democrat hope. And so how could the how could the governor of South Carolina then take it more seriously than the president? And so I don't know. I think 
that will definitely be the study to look at how this played out across ideological lines, which is unfortunate. And we have the legislature here because it's uh, split party government trying to sue the governor, trying to diminish her powers, um, trying to overturn 40 years of legislation that said the governor could do this. Um, and I know some of the same stuff is happening in Kansas and other states. And so I don't know, it's a really unfortunate time when you kind of see this play out across the country. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a time where we see the importance of good public policy, good leadership, and also good public policy. Because uh, uh, you know, like the go to Dr. Capers next talking about Georgia and their governor's uh, decision to uh, roll back his uh, stay-at-home order, and you know, is letting people go bowling, right? Which is, I mean, which is which is not essential. So you, you know, say, I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, so and from what I understand, the the coronavirus cases keep going up in Georgia, and so right. yeah, and so you're on the ground in Georgia. Do you see are, are a lot of people coming out, or businesses opening up, are people feeling comfortable to go uh, after he rolled back these uh, this policy? Let me be clear and say I am not literally on the ground. I am in my house, still social distancing. But um, as I watch the news. It's, it's interesting in where they are reporting, where people are out and open. So in the suburbs, they are out and it's open. So restaurants have to operate at 25% of their capacity. So they can't fully open. And they have to, of course, meet, I think there are 39 criteria points that they have to meet. But so in places like Noonan, Georgia, and um, places in Cobb County, like Marietta, they are, they're opening and you see people um, out in businesses and restaurants, but places that are um, more central to the city, right? In the city of Atlanta, where Mayor Lance Bottoms has made it very clear that she does not want people doing this. Restaurants are still closing. So are still closed, excuse me. So um, I went out for a dinner on Friday, right? To pick up a pizza and it was open. It was a beautiful day, but they were still closed, right? Still doing delivery. Um, and so many places that are in the city core are still sort of following that. On the other hand, because many uh, restaurants are still in the city core are doing that, what you guys are probably seeing on social media and on even some national news outlets of Atlanta are the public parks, right? That are not necessarily under her full jurisdiction, but where people are hanging out. And so where we aren't going to restaurants in the city core, you'll see people out like in Piedmont Park, which is probably our biggest park here in Atlanta, um, people not properly social distancing, people out and about. And so while businesses are um, in the core are staying, remaining closed, recognizing that, you know, it's going to take some time for us to figure this out, or this might be might not be advantageous for our um, our employees, places that are in the suburbs and that's kind of, I guess I'm speaking in a coded language that are more Republican leaning, if I had to be completely transparent, are sort of aligning more with the governor's decision. Uh, I think time will tell if this, what the implication will be. I know we all speculate like, oh, the cases, the numbers are going to go up, but cities and states are gambling to see what's going to happen. So we'll see. So I can't say that I see like where I live major changes, but certainly when I look at it on the news and I think about where it's happening, it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I, I saw that one article that talked about how a person went to a restaurant and because of how the air conditioner circulated, that one person with COVID gave it to like five or six other people. Oh yeah. It's, and so to me, that doesn't it doesn't matter if it's twenty five percent capacity. You know, <laughs> are, are you going to change the ventilation system to where I only breathe my own air? You know, it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of silly, but, and also who, who isn't, you know, cause if you, you can say that company, like restaurants, you got to be at 25%, uh, barbershops, you got to do this. Who is, who is, there, what, there is no capacity to enforce that public policy. I mean, who is, who is the enforcement arm? Yeah. Um, so you, <laughs> right. So the sheriffs, I think before we had to shelter in place, like sheriffs were supposed to be enforcing this, of course, public safety, uh, anybody, certainly anybody who falls law enforcement that falls under his jurisdiction. But in the little bit of clips that I've seen, I haven't seen anybody enforcing it actively. And I think that they've said, oh, we haven't had many reports of people violating the practices. But of course, right, you don't have a lot of reports if nobody is actually enforcing it or policing it. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good point. It's all very, 
Very, very interesting. And your, your point about the, the ventilation is a good point as well. So one of the major concerns here in the city is, and I think this is why some people are still very hesitant, despite really wanting to be out, is to say, but if I can't get a test and I don't know enough about this this virus, then I don't want to run the risk. If you're going to tell me I have a hospital bed for you, but I don't have a test for you, what message are you sending? Right? And so mm-hmm. it is really giving many people some pause to still maintain social distance or still shelter in place despite um, having the ability to drive a little further and socialize if they would like. Yeah, I think it I think also that, brings a good. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say it brings oh, go a good point too about. Um, I think everyone's touched on this, the role of preemption in this time too, because mm-hmm. we're talking a lot about what governors are doing, but really we have a lot of mayors who have the capacity to, you know, implement or try to enact something more locally that might be more tailored to their constituents. And I think it's a good discussion around kind of like race and ideology as well. Um, especially, I think all of us on this are Southerners and, you know, my brother lives in Alabama and golf courses are essential. They've been open to golf pro. So he's worked every single day with all of his clients because uh, despite kind of the mayor and the governor kind of having these differences and what's essential and not like that still kind of wins out and he's still able to work potentially in an unsafe condition as well. And so I think we're going to see, and we have been seeing more mayors kind of being able to step to the plate uh, with governors making short on things like uh, regulation and reinforcement of some of that state. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I think the enforcement thing is going to be really big. Just yesterday, a security guard was uh, shot at a family dollar in, in Flint because he confronted a, 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 a shopper about not wearing a mask. And then we saw, um, I think it was Tulsa, Oklahoma, the mayor reversed the mandatory mask ordinance because several uh, commercial establishments we're calling the police because people are harassing them. And so um, I've seen it myself walking around here, you know, I'm wearing my mask. Most of the people that look like me are wearing masks, but there are, there's clearly a racial divide in this idea that masks are, are necessary and that they should be, the law should be followed. And so, um, so even coming out of this, you know, like you say, enforcement and safety and all of those things are still going to be um, front and center. And again, you know, who's probably the security guard that's going to be telling somebody to put their mask on and who's going to be the aggressor that probably takes a, takes advantage of that security guard. And so those racial disparities are still going to be there, even over something as simple as mask. Because mm-hmm. you got to, I mean, what are you going to do, write you a ticket? I mean, like a five dollar mask ticket or something. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge conundrum, right? And so, yeah. uh, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just a hodgepodge of different policies, and people don't know what to do. Well, there yeah. Was a, huh? I was gonna say, I just think we're getting a really interesting live study of federalism, right? So. Mm. For, for those of us who live in, who don't have a full understanding of jurisdictional boundaries in Atlanta, um, some people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to Keisha. <laughs> and I'm always like, well, I mean, technically you don't have to listen to Keisha because Keisha is not everybody's mayor, but uh, it's great that you're listening to Keisha, but we see, but then, then they're also confused about, well, how can he tell us what to do in Atlanta? Well, he's the governor of the entire state, right? And so. <laughs> Um, in some instances, supersede what Keisha says. And so, excuse me, Mayor Lance Bottom, she's not my friend. I don't know her like that. Um, but so it, it causes some confusion, but I, it gives us an opportunity, at least as scholars and you know people who do this work to say, yeah, this is how government works. And if you don't like what he is doing in response to counteract what Mayor Lance Bottoms is doing is to say, yeah, I hate to be a cliche, but vote, right? Like make sure that you, you also vote against him too if you don't like how this is operating but these are how this systems work you know you bring up a good point too uh COVID-19 does not know any boundaries so it's also a question about like we have these different jurisdictional boundaries but you know that's not necessarily going to stop COVID-19 from doing what it's going to do so there are also pure questions about yeah those federalism relationships but then you know as much as we can preempt locally what does that mean it's ultimately up to the state, perhaps. And then similarly, these things we're seeing across, you know, if you fly into Texas, you have to quarantine if you come from certain states. I mean, so okay. each state kind of having its own policy laboratory about what they think works or doesn't um, ultimately might not matter for how COVID is getting around the country. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what is interesting because you have low, uh, mayors in particular saying, hey, I want to do as much as I can to protect my 
uh, jurisdiction and you have someone above them saying, oh, don't worry about it, right? It's not that big of a deal. Who, when it, in theory, should probably be the reverse. Yeah, even in California, where they've been doing a really good job of, uh, of flattening the curve, there have been counties that are bucking uh, Governor, Governor, was it Gavin Newsom? Yeah, Governor Newsom's uh, stay-at-home order. And there was one scene where it was a bunch of people at the beach and the, the sheriff was just like, he's not going to enforce it. Mm-hmm. He just told, he just like he's like I'm not gonna do it. Which I mean uh, I, I can see it from both ways. I mean, do you if, if people are out there and there's possibility they're spreading COVID now, do you want your deputies out there? You know, like trying to corral people and you know these tight spaces and you know, but or or you know you just don't care. You know, you just don't care and, and uh, you feel like uh, they should be out. But I think a lot of that comes from pressure. Well, with, well I think I'm going to close with here. A lot of things come with that pressure because states are losing a lot of revenue. And there haven't been any stimulus packages to to reef to to put some money back in these coffers, which means that states are going to have to make cuts to services, and those services include you know these these public administrators, these bureaucrats, down to sheriffs departments, you know school teachers and things like that. So uh, I guess in in in, in closing. Uh, in, any con- any concerns you see about these these state deficits that are piling up, and also uh, what policy er- er- what if you if you could if you could help draw the policy up, what areas would you try to make sure got some money uh, that that would be you know really essential to restarting these states from from a capacity uh, perspective, being able to carry out uh, uh, functions of of, of, of a government. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I know, right? I, I think we have a really good um, historical record of you know how this goes down, right? We saw in the last recession, um, states laid off you know a lot of people, and then we had this big stimulus where it was like do these shovel ready projects, roll this money, spend this money really quickly, but the states did not have the capacity because they had laid off you know so many of their employees to even manage this huge influx of cash. Um, and so hopefully the thought, and I know that the Democrats in the House are trying to ensure that in the next round of stimulus, there's monies for states and localities to um, be able to keep their people, because uh, a big part of it is just the human capital. Um, I know here in the city of Detroit, they're already doing furloughs and some departments are only working four hours a week. Um, you know, what can a city Wow. do to maintain themselves with, with people working four hours a week. And so um, I hope the, the stimulus for states comes quick um, before they really kind of decimate their human capital. I'm, I'm selfish. I love energy. And so I would love to see resources um, for states to do more on home repair, especially if people have to shelter in place. You need to have a safe and healthy home. Um, and so I'm looking for some energy-related home repair funds in the next round of stimulus. Yeah, I would say, um, again, as everyone's saying, like there's tons of things. I think what it's exposed though is how thin our safety net is both federally and locally. Mm -hmm. And um, I would definitely say that some of the things that have been exacerbated and therefore more likely to get a second look are things that, you know, people who were in a greater position of, you know, employment or socioeconomic privilege of experience. I think one of them is um, childcare and access to that. We see a lot of professional peers who have kids and are having to, you know, work two days out of the week to provide childcare to their kid or e-learning to their kid um, for the rest of the time. So I think that is probably super impactful for the short term, especially because so many childcare facilities are also closed right now. And so I think that's something that despite how the openings are happening, school systems are going to remain closed um, and kind of selfishly. Um, I am really interested in housing policy as well. And I think having some protections in place for renters, I don't know that we've gotten to the mm-hmm. place foreclosures, but definitely we know that black and brown folks are more likely to rent than anyone else in the country. And they're also the most likely to have these either essential positions where they have to go closed or they're in situations where, um, you know, they have to keep working hourly to stay employed. If those jobs are gone and they can't pay their rent. So some mm-hmm. form of rental forgiveness, um, which probably involves some mixture of a subsidy to a renter and or something to the landlord to ensure that they can also be sufficient. Yeah, so I think that, Dr. Reem's point, that um, having giving the money to invest in their human capital is going to be really, really important. Um, And I would add also that 
have being able to invest in infrastructure and so understanding that internet is now infrastructure, right? It's as important as electricity, it's as important as gas, it's as important as all of these things that we tend to think of as fundamental to running a house, that's where it is now. And so adding that to infrastructure is going to be extremely important. And so being able to provide some funding for states to be able to build up that infrastructure capacity so that all of the things that students need, that parents need, that are teleworking, that are even our, our bureaucrats need to do their work at home should they have to continue doing it at home is, is supported and it's, it's, there for them to do. I mean, like the even even those of us who have the resources sometimes run into the bump of not having stable internet connection, right? And so investing in that element of infrastructure, I think, is going to be really important. So supporting things and giving them the ability to do that, I think, is important. Excellent. Well, again, uh, thank you, Dr. Brianna Merritt, Dr. Tony Reams, and Dr. Jare Capers. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I know we're all at the end of the semester and, you know, you're trying to do all this online grading and, you know, probably course prepping for online fall, maybe. So I really appreciate you participating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah.